Well, hello everyone and welcome to episode nine of Switch of Play uh, with myself, Mark Simpson, and good evening once again, Mickey Barron. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm well. Um, um, actually, my last day at work today before the six weeks holidays, if you can believe that. I know it's, uh, it's strange times for everyone, but it's actually the last day at work. We've still got stuff to do for the next two or three days, contacting kids and, and just doing the lessons um, on the computer. But apart from that, yeah, I'm looking forward to the, the six weeks when uh, we just relax a little bit. I was going to say, you're ready, some, ready for some time off now. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone said to me, are you going away? I was like, I'm going to have to try because I've had four months of sort of <laughs> occupying the kids in the house and another six weeks of my finishes off. So, yeah, um, no, it's good. As I say, we're, we're just trying to get through this week and then look forward to our holidays. And great feedback once again to the Tinks episode last week. We knew it was going to be enjoyable for people, but you know it's always nice when that's backed up by the reaction as well. Yeah, definitely. I think we knew what was going to happen. I think um, anyone that knows Tinks knows what he's like. But I think it was it was nice to see he had the serious side of him as well as a coach, yeah. and especially when he was talking about Coops leaving. And Absolutely. and I think he was quite emotional about that. You could you could hear it in his voice mm -hmm. and definitely see it in him. But uh, obviously, the other side is is the funny side of Tinks and. Um, some of the stories were great. Some of the stories I had to leave out were even better, but um, hopefully we'll, we'll try and get them on again and, at some point and, and maybe uh, tell those stories to everyone. We're having a good variety of guests, and tonight is, is really one where we're branching out a little bit, isn't it? You know, I think the previous eight guests, at least one of us, has known them very, very well, you know? And tonight with Steve Fletcher, it's a little bit different. We both know of him and we've both met him before, but... I'm really interested and fascinated to learn a bit more about his career from the horse's mouth and, and just about how he feels the fact that although he didn't play the lion's share of his football for Hartlepool, I think the people of Hartlepool still sort of hold dear the achievements he's, he's, he's made in the game. Yeah, he, he obviously had a big impact at the time when he, when he burst onto the scene and um, people still remember the goals that he scored. And as you say, he didn't play that many games, but I think being a Hartlepool lad and and being a big lad, larger than life character as well. When he came home, everyone knew he was home type of thing. So, yeah, as I say, I've I played against him. I've sat with him, watched a couple of games with him. I don't know a great deal about him. I don't know sort of how he works or what he's doing at the moment. So it's going to be interesting. But I really want to see when he was playing for Bournemouth, sort of, was he ever wanting to come back to Hartlepool? Did he ever have the chance to do that? Obviously, did he look out for results and stuff like that? So, just picking his brains on football in general, but sort of the connection to Hartlepool will be interesting. Well, welcome to Switch of Play. Without further ado, Steve Fletcher. How are you, Fletcher? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I'd like to say I'm down on this uh, sunny south coast, but it's a bit miserable today. Um, <laughs> unusually for July here in Bournemouth, it's usually fantastic weather, but I'm okay. Obviously, we, we start off by talking a little bit about how the whole situation in the world, the crisis and the pandemic that's that's gone across the globe. How has it affected you and your life and the things you've had to do? How have you how have you coped during that lockdown? Well, we were we went in on the Friday, um, normal training. We were due to play Crystal Palace on the Sunday, um, <clears throat> so we went in on the Friday, and we got word of the coronavirus situation from the club doctor. And we all got a meeting together. Eddie grabbed in all the staff, all the players. So there's probably 70, 80 people in this meeting. And he said, well, we've got to adhere to the guidelines that have gone ahead. And he sent us home. And that was on the well, was Friday the 13th of March. And everyone was like, ooh, Friday the 13th. I'm lucky. <laughs> and we kept in touch through WhatsApp. We set up a WhatsApp group between the staff, obviously the coaching staff, uh, club doctor, physios, etc. 
And we just monitored it week by week, but the, the weeks just flew past. And before I knew it, one week we turned into two, into four, into six, and there was there was nothing. And there was no sign of us coming back, and it was very strange. So we were very, very fortunate down here. And obviously having my parents back in Hartlepool, um, I kept in touch with them, but we had unbelievable weather for March, all of April, most of May. So I was very fortunate, you know, spending my time in the back garden, going up. A uh, lovely area we have, we have a heath behind us where I take my three dogs. So every day, yes, it was monotonous, but I was out doing something and I tried to have some structure to my day where yeah. it didn't matter what I did, I tried to achieve something, uh, whether it be jet washing the driveway or cleaning the faces on the house or whatever it was, I, I tried to achieve something each day and then sit in the garden and enjoy myself like it was my six to seven weeks off in the summer before we go back because I just didn't know what was going to happen. And then I think I went back middle of May, so it was almost nine weeks we had off. It was very strange. We went back, it was small groups of five. We had to be tested. I mean, we still get tested two and three times a week. Um, we have to drive, we have a drive-through testing area for, for all the staff, but it was only limited staff could go back. So it was the players first, the immediate first team staff, Eddie Howe, Jason Tindley, assistant manager. I was invited back into the second week um, because the Premier League allowed uh, each team to, ha to have uh, more representatives, more people in that group. Um, we went from 40, which obviously 28 of them are players, into, into 50. And when we went to 50, I got back in. So them seven, eight, nine weeks I had off doing nothing was very strange just because nobody had a clue what was happening. I enjoyed it in a bizarre way. Spent a lot of time with my family. Um, you know, apart from the odd little niggly argument, which you have quite <laughs> we, we got on really well and it was nice to spend some time because usually in my position at the football club, I leave the house at half seven in the morning and I'm probably getting in about half six at night. Um, that's not even travelling away with the team. So to spend every day with her for, for almost nine weeks was, was a test. Uh, we had my daughter who was at university. She's 19. She was with us all the time, every day. And my other daughter was the worry because she was a midwife. She's a fully qualified midwife. And uh, from day one, she was on the front line. And as you know, they had no PPE. Every time she'd come home from work, you know, she was having to be sanitized straight in the shower, closing the washing machine. It, it, was, a, it was a worry because that put us at high risk because she was at high risk. So I had yeah. both ends of the spectrum. I had the chilling out with my family. And then I had the worry of my eldest daughter, Danny, who's 22 and a midwife. So it was a strange time, but I enjoyed it. Fletch, can we just go, what is your role at Bournemouth now? I know some people, a lot of people will know it, but just for some of the people that might not know, what are you actually doing within the football club? Well, I've been retired um, since 2013. So I've been retired seven years. I had two years as in the recruitment, which Eddie Howe made me um, head of UK recruitment in my second year. But then in 2015, just as we got into the Premier League, he asked me to go along in the coaching role. Um, something I absolutely love because the next best thing to being a player, which I had for 23, 24 years, is to be out on the field with the players. Yeah. You know, I, I went into training every day and I helped join in and obviously it was just, you know, doing whatever Eddie wants and it still is to this day, really. But And then at the end of that season, which would have been 2015, after our first um, season in the Premier League, he asked me if I'd like to stay on and I was like, yeah, 100%, that's what I'd love to do. I mean, I enjoyed the scouting role. It, it, it opened my eyes, but where Bournemouth is geologically on the map, a bit like Hartlepool, everywhere. Yeah, town. yeah. And you have a lot of teams in the Manchester area, and we don't have many down here. So sometimes when I had to go watch our players on a Tuesday night, I'd be up at you know 
Blackburn, Bolton, Burnley. And uh, it was tough driving, you know. Yeah, it's, it's not as glamorous as it sounds, Fletch, is it, that road? No, it's not. And it's a lonely place. And sometimes it was nice to sometimes sit there and gather your thoughts, listen to your music, listen to the podcast. But doing it three and four times a week and, you know, and the roads are shut on the way back at 10 o'clock at night and you're getting diverted and it's taking you six hours to get back from Manchester, teaming down with rain and... That's not the glamorous side of it. The glamorous side of it is obviously seeing the players you sign come in and do well. So the likes of Josh King, Callum Wilson, who I, you know, relentlessly went to week in, week out to watch them. That, that's the special moments that I got from scouting. And it opened my eyes to, to many things. Um, but obviously being on the field, helping the boys with the coaching and doing whatever he wants me out on the training field is the, is the next best thing to football. So I've been now a coach for four and a half years, first team coach. And they also do the ambassador role, which I took on permanently when I retired in 2013. So when the players go to events or the club wants a spokesman for a charity business, you know, children's hospital, I'll go and do everything that the chief exec and the owner and the manager want. So Brilliant. I have represented the club for many years. I've been there 28 years now, so I've represented them like you were, Mickey, and, you know, in, in aspects. But to be given the ambassador role was something I was very proud of uh, back in, back when I retired. And I, something I, I take very seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's brilliant that you've obviously been there for such a long time, but your reputation down there and, and the way you speak and the way you are and your manner, it's a perfect role for you to do alongside your coaching as well, isn't it? So it's it's a credit to you that you can manage both those roles because it must be it must be testing at times to do both roles, but do them do them well. Do you know that the hardest thing I found uh, when, I, when I retired was because I played till I was almost 41, I've become so institutionalized in yeah. playing. And yourself, you know, you had a long career. I'd had a 24-year career. And I thought I was Peter Pan. I thought I could go on forever. And a lot of the players, when I retired, well, some of them are still there now. So when I went into scouting, there was still seven or eight of the lads still there from my first year I retired. And even then, when I went on the coaching role, there was still seven or eight lads in the first team. And I found it hard transition and um, because I always wanted to play I thought I could play yeah, forever. Yeah. Um, taking the role is of the coaching is is easy because of Ed and the way he works you know I, I'm there and when he needs me and what he wants me to do and if he wants my input I wait for him to ask rather than me putting it out there. Um, the ambassador role is great because I'm in among the players and like I say I always represent the club. I, you know, I've been on media courses it's something I even look to get into after football and the media side of things so I was always going to do little weekend things with Sky Sports, uh, local radio down here, Radio Solent, BBC Radio Solent. So I was doing a lot of things like that. And the ambassador role sort of walked into it because I was doing a lot of it representing the club anyway. I think it's just something you become better at with age. You speak better, you learn yeah. to be in different environments. And it opens your mind up to all different avenues. Like I say, I could be in a hospital one week. I could be taking the players to a charity event. And I'm speaking to school children. And then I'm speaking to, to businessmen in, in big companies across the South, uh, as sportsmen, because they like to know about our success at Bournemouth Football Club, because it, it, that relates to business as well. So I'm always telling our story to a wide range of different people, and I really enjoy that. And I suppose the sort of rise of Bournemouth from when Eddie took over and, and getting to the Premier League was a perfect time for you to, to make that ambassador role even bigger and sort of the, the sort of focus on Bournemouth just got gigantic didn't it when they went into the Premier League it was surreal it was Mickey and it's I don't know it was 
it's sort of of all my career, 23 years, I got 10 times more attention because of my role at the club. And I mean, a lot of Harley Club people might not know this, but we were one game from going out of the Football League in 2009. Yeah. Um, I came back to Bournemouth after 18 months away. When Eddie took over as manager in 2009, in January, he got, my, he got me back. I was at Chesterfield for, for a year in Crawley Town. I'd been released after 15 years. And he got me back at the age of 36. And I scored the winning goal 10 minutes from time to keep the football. Yeah, going. I remember that, yeah. And we basically had no chairman, nobody working there. We, we had an embargo. We'd gone into administration again. We'd been deducted 17 points at the start of the season. And to score that goal goes down in folklore. And all the companies from NBC were coming over from America and they wanted to know about this this fairy tale story of this small little League One club, how they went from almost going out of the Football League. So straight away, it's following the goal, giving me this magnanimous, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this. And output towards what the team had achieved. I mean, it was literally probably a small catalyst from where we're at now as a team, but. The attention we got, and I got personally, was just unbelievable. You think you had 23, 24 years as a player, but because you're in the limelight, you're in the Premier League, it's, you're viewed all over the world. I think we were the second most watched team in our first season in America behind Manchester United because they just love this fairy tale of this yeah, yeah. small little club that gets 10, 11,000 supporters going up against Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham. It was crazy. And um, I really enjoyed it. And you're right, it took my ambassador role on even further because when I did go into companies in Bournemouth or across the South, they wanted to know, basically, how did we do it? Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if you're a football company or you're a limited company, you're in business, you're in economics, whatever it is, finance. You're all a team. And that team's got a... The cogs have got to work in every department for the team to be successful. You can't have any, any part of that department pulling in different directions. So... My story was, yes, football, but it relates to every business in every walk of life if you want to be successful. Yeah. I was going to... I could talk about Eddie all day because Eddie's I'm one of his biggest fans. I love the way he plays football. I love the way he handles himself. But I honestly don't think, out probably outside of Bournemouth, he got enough credit for what, you, well, you, what everyone at the club did, just keeping them in the league. And going into Premier League and everything else they've done is amazing. But that season, keeping you up for me, was just an incredible achievement. 100%. Look, Mickey, it's no different, 100% no different than Hartlepool United getting in the Premier League. We yeah. were getting 3,000, 3, 3,500 supporters, right? When we were doing well, we were getting five. Exactly the same as Hartlepool. Average of three when they're in League One. All of a sudden, you're getting fives, you're getting more, you're getting to them. I mean, you got to the playoff final, didn't you? You got beat on Sheck Webb and we took tens of thousands down there. So the support is there to a degree, but we'll always be this small club and we are the smallest club in the Premier League. Simple as. You yeah. get 11,000 supporters. Yes, if we had a bigger stadium, we might get 15, 16. We're never going to get 25,000. I don't think I don't think there's that type of intense support down here. We're a seaside town and we've got a fabulous football team. We play beautiful football and we've got a manager who's escalated us to this bizarre position of being in the Premier League when we're always a league one team. So Fletch, how, how, how did he do it? Because, I mean, I don't know him. I've obviously played against him and, and you watch from afar and you think, yeah, keeping them in the league is one thing and sort of that miracle. But then 
changing the mindset of the players who are already there because you can't get rid of them all. And then obviously the recruitment must have been good to get players in that he yeah. wanted. Um, it is a fairy tale story. There's no other way of saying it, is it? But I'd love to know that season after he stayed up, what what was his plans? Was he just happy to stay up, or did he want to to push on and really like gain momentum for the club? He's always said it. his motto is, you know, if you stand still, you go backwards, and even if you move forward half a percent, one percent, if you get one percent more out of each player, and there's twenty odd players in the team, you're you're pushing in the right direction. So. He's really strong-minded. He has an incredible work ethic. You know, he's he's in at the stadium at half six every morning. <laughs> I was going to the gym with him in this, a couple of years ago at about six o'clock, but I had to get in at ten to six to set up ready for me and him. And we did <laughs> half an hour. But by four o'clock, I was asleep at the desk, and I don't know how he did it. His, his work ethic is relentless. He doesn't let any little thing, tiny thing, tiny thing, get brushed under the carpet because he's... In his, in his mind, if you brush that under the carpet, other things get brushed before you know you've got big problems. So he nails yeah. them problems straight away. His attention to detail, he's very meticulous. Um, he's not a shouter, he's not a baller. Um, he tells you when you have to, but as you know, Mickey, in this day and age, you can't just go and shout at every player. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. We're just talking about it. doesn't work, does it? When... To get absolute, you know, relentlessly bollockings off the manager, why wouldn't I? Because that was where it was. I'm sure. And you were there, you did it as well. But nowadays, there's certain players you can and can't. Um, of course, he needed the backing of the owner, uh, Max Denham, our owner, our Russian owner. So when we stayed up that year in 2009, I was speaking about, he had a good group of players. He got me back to gel them players together. Like I said, I was 36, going on 37. We got promoted with the same team the next year because we had an embargo on because we'd been into our district no, yeah. on the season before. We couldn't sign anyone. And then we got promoted and we, we were in the about six or seventh in the league and then Burnley come calling for him, or Crystal Palace originally, and we turned them down and then Burnley. And I think he thought he had to go then because, you know, the backing wasn't there with, with the Russian at its present time. And Burnley was in the, in the championship and, you know, he wanted to see how far he could take it as a manager as much as he loved Bournemouth. And then, as football does, it, it, it turns full circle and within 18 months he's back. I mean, I took over for, as assistant manager for 10 months. I really enjoyed that while he was gone. Um, then I stepped down and for whatever reason and uh, I become a player again. So I was 39, 40 when Eddie came back. And he got me straight back and involved and he had me on the bench and I played 11 games in the season when he came back. And we came back in the October and we were 21st in League One and we spiralled and we never lost a game and we went right to the top of the league. We lost a couple in about March, April. And then we, on the last day of the season, we drew away at Tramia, but we'd already been promoted. And all of a sudden, we're only the second time in the club's history we're in the, we're in the championship, and it was just incredible. But as soon as he walked back in, in October, after he'd had the 18 months away at Burnley, because obviously I'd been with him from almost the first day he took over in January uh, 2009, I could just see the difference in him. He'd been to a bigger club in Burnley, a higher league, and I, I just saw the difference straight away in... I suppose he matured as a manager and he's still only probably three yeah. years into, three years into his management. He's an absolute rookie still, but just see the difference. And he set a plan out. He had the boys focused. And like any good squad that you've played in, I've played in, if the team buy into it, you're halfway there. You need yeah. good characters. You need players who are going to look after the dressing room. And you're going to, everyone's got to fight for each other. And that's what we did. And yes, we got in the championship. Nobody expected us to even survive in the championship. And 
ridiculously in our second year in the champ, we won, we won the championship. <laughs> we won it on the last kick of the last game. And um, Fletcher, just, I mean, so you look at you look at the players and and some of the players now were fantastic, but there's still a core of players there. Yep. Well, probably not as many now, but you, you look at Coop, you look at Francis. There's still players there that were there in the lower leagues. Yeah, Adam Smith, Charlie, Adam Smith, Charlie Daniels. That's a fullback yeah. really. And can you do me a favour? Can you get Eddie to give them a new contract? Because I can say to my kids, "Look, I played against them." And <laughs> I know you didn't, Dan. I was like, honestly, I did. I was I mean, and, and, and that for me is, that is a sign of a good coach. If you can get players to, to coach them from playing in League Two and, and League One and then coming up and, and, and being able to carry it out on a regular basis in the Premier League shows what a good coach and what a good coaching staff you must have. I think nine, nine of the players we had in League One were playing in the Premier League in our first couple of seasons. I think seven started the first Premier League game maybe eight, maybe seven or eight, started the first Premier League game at home, Aston Villa, in 2015. That were in League One when he came back in 2012. Incredible. But it's Eddie incredible. Well, I, I was in recruitment. So the first question you would ask is, is this player you're giving me any better than the player I've got? Because he has to be considerably better for me to buy him. Because if, if I listen to you, Fletch, and I buy him, then this player who is in this position can't play for me. And, and I, looked at it, I looked at it different because he would have had to be astronomically better. Because what Ed says is, don't turn away what's under your nose. Because he is a good coach, because he's on the field and he's working on all their attributes individually, collectively, and he is relentless in coaching them. Um, every minute detail, he always says that to me, you know, don't look any further than what's under your nose. Because if then players are good enough and they can be coached, why go out and spend a ridiculous amount of money on players when we've got players in there who are more than capable? And that's why them players played in the Premier League and still are today. Oh, and do you think... Sorry, me. You mentioned Adam Smith there. And I've got to say, Hartlepool drew Bournemouth in the League Cup a few years ago and Adam Smith played right back. Yeah. And I swear to God, he was that good that night. I was saying to people, you could lift him out of Bournemouth's team and put him in any side in League Two and they'd have a chance of winning the league because he was that good. He, he was unbelievable. Yeah, and I remember Tyrone Mings played left-back. It was his uh, debut. It was his debut, you're right. He played and we were very good that night. I mean, yeah, we changed the team around because it was the cup games and Eddie always does that to give people a chance. But we were very good. We passed it. I think looking at it now, and I can look at it now because I've, I've played low league. I've watched us come through the leagues. And then when we play teams, obviously, two or three leagues below us, it's just the pace of which we play, the pace, the athletic, and the athleticism. And I remember that I forgot who the manager was. Was it Ronnie? Was he? Uh, was he manager then? I'm not sure. He just said yeah. he just turned around and went, "These Premier League players aren't bad, are they?" And it was just like, <laughs> it was because they're just a different animal. The athleticism is the main thing. Of course, you've got to be technically good, but if you're an athlete now, um, you've got a good chance of playing at a very high level because that's just the, the way the game's gone. If you're not an athlete, you would have to be technically very good to play in the Premier League because you look at all the top players and even the players who are playing regularly year in, year out in the Premier League, they have something that makes them a little bit different um, to the rest of the players who are not in the Premier League. And Eddie got it out of them. I say I played with Adam Smith when we were in League One. We were fighting to stay in the league and he worked his way up. So he's a prime example of, of what I've just been speaking about, a player 
who coached with Eddie and Jason and you know, all the coaching staff, including myself, has thrived on that coaching. He's absorbed the information. He's took it on board and he's went out and delivered it. And of course, going back to the other bit, Mickey, our second year, we, you, you then have to strengthen. And if you yeah. don't strengthen, other teams will. And we had opportunities to buy players. And I think we've, overall we've recruited very well. Um, the majority of players who've come in have always played a big part in the team. You are get, going to get one or two over the years that it just didn't work out. And they go to other teams and they thrive in other teams. And that's just football. Um, but what Eddie does is he never gets a player in and within a couple of months makes a decision on him. He gives him time. He gives him time to digest everything Ed wants to do from his, Ed's philosophy, the way we want to play, the ethos, everything. And Eddie will give them a chance. He does not like to see a player, a player fail who's been brought into the club because if they've been brought into this club, then there's a reason because they, they're looked at to be good enough and they should be part of the team. So there's not many players we've sold on if we could help it. I mean, we've, had, we've added quality players. Of course, we have like Nathan Ake, you know, Josh King, Callum Wilson. Um, we've had some great players and we're still trying to add to the team. But that player, whoever comes in, Will not just be because oh he's a good player because everybody says so. Ed wants to look at all his attributes and what he's yeah. like as a character, what he's like outside of the changing room, and what he can bring to the team on and off the field. I, 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 when I was at Hartlepool, I used to see the odd young lad come on loan. I remember Steve Colker came with Yeovil when from Spurs as centre half, and he looked like a Rolls Royce. Like, and you'd get the odd player, but the only other team I've seen where the, that Bournemouth team. You could pick four or five players out of them, and like Simo said, you could imagine them playing in the Premier. The only other team I remember doing that was the Southampton team that had Lalana, Oxley, Chamberlain, and that group of players is a yeah. Gareth Bale and that as well, yeah. And they just had that group where you think, Do you know what? There's not one good player here. There's four or five, six that wouldn't be out of place in the top league, and they went on to play there. But it, you just sometimes see it in that Bournemouth team. I don't like Simo said you could pick those players out and. And they have gone on to prove that they can play in the Premier League. And, and like I said, we'll give, we'll give Eddie all the accolades and absolutely right. And, and, and all the coaching staff. But then players have to take it on board. They have to have that drive, that desire, that will, that passion to go and play. And basically go and deliver what Eddie and the coaching team are giving them. Um, because you can be coached you know, every minute of every day of every week. But if you don't absorb that information and then go out and deliver it, it's wasted and it's just, yeah. you know, it's thrown away. So credit to the players as well, basically, because they have basically changed their life around. And, you know, I, I, have, I have no qualms about them players, you know, earning unbelievable money because the effort they've put in to get from League One players and regular League One players to be solid Premier League players for the last five years is no, no more credit to them than they deserve because they've been there you know, a credit to themselves, to their own family for, for doing what they've done. Yeah, Just definitely. Looking back at Eddie then, obviously he's been there such a long time, barring that, that, that trip away to Burnley, but has the last few weeks possibly been his biggest test of his own self-belief since, since the lockdown was lifted and things? And, and then to come through what happened on, on Sunday, was, it must have been such a boost for everybody involved because at half-time I was watching the game and I was wondering where Bournemouth were going to get a, a goal from. And he's somehow done something, tweaked something at half-time and completely changed that game. You're 100% correct. Absolutely. Um, 
We obviously were level on points with West Ham and Watford, but on goal difference, we were sitting third bottom before lockdown. Obviously, during lockdown, we got a few players back from injury. We've had a horrendous injury list. I mean, even all the Premier League managers were texting Eddie and saying, I just can't believe your team. Mm. You know, yeah, and getting one player fit, you're getting one and losing two. It was just astronomical and was beyond belief. And they were all top players. It was, you know, no disrespect to the rest of the squad players, but, you know, we're talking about six or seven starters every week. And But listen, it's the way it is and that's why you have a squad and it gives other people opportunity. But, it did hit us. It was terrible. But Ed would never say that. I'm saying it, but Ed would never say it because he would yeah. never make an excuse up. And it's not an excuse because you have a team for a reason. Other players have got to come in, but it just didn't happen. I mean, before we played Newcastle on the, in November, before the international break, um, we were sitting something like sixth or seventh in the league. Um, Newcastle beat us. And then it had been a downward spiral since then. We just couldn't get going over Christmas. Then into lockdown, we found ourselves battling against all, all the odds. And every time we got somebody fit, to get injured in training and games, and you think, this is just not meant to be. So it is, it is, and what Mickey said, it is Ed's biggest test. Absolutely. And the game on on Sunday, I'm sat in, in, in the stand and I'm thinking, that's it, it's done. One nil at half time. If, if Nathan Aki hadn't made that challenge on, on Vardy and deflected it over the bar, we go in at half time, two nil, and the game's yeah. over. So, without any expletives and uh, having to bleep it out, it was all bust. <laughs> to be honest, I, I only actually watched the second half. Uh, I was doing, I was out in the garden doing <laughs> something. I came and watched the second half. I couldn't believe what everyone was talking about because I just saw <laughs> Leicester play really bad and Bournemouth play really well, and and yeah. it just shows how football can change that momentum in football. How it can change. <laughs> and it, it, it doesn't matter what league whether you're playing in the over forties with me or you're playing in the Premier League. And I remember Mick Wadsworth saying to me, he said, if you can find a reason for the switch of momentum in football, you'll be a billionaire. Because if you can tell that why it happens, you'll be as, you'll be as rich as you want to be because no one can work it out. And you're right. It doesn't matter what level you play at. You can play for Real Madrid, Barcelona. You can play for Bournemouth and Hartlepool United. It doesn't matter what level. If that momentum swing is everything. I spoke to Steve Cook, our centre-half, who came off the bench for Nathan when he got injured. Afterwards, he just said to me, because he came on just before half-time when Nathan went off injured, and he said to me, I just felt like my, my feet were really light. I said, Cookie, it's because we were winning. And it doesn't matter if you're Premier League. He just couldn't get his head around it. I said, because you're winning. Because we've not had that feeling for a while. When you're getting beat or you're under pressure, your legs feel heavy. You do. And you must have yeah. felt that many times. Yeah, yeah. When you're winning and things are flowing and you're playing well and the team's playing well, you're winning your headers as a centre-half, you're passing it, wrapping the ball into the midfield. Everything just feels light. You feel light on your feet. You get that bounce, that stride. And um, it just proves you're right at any level. And we came in half time, we went 3 5 2, and we'd only had two days recovery before we played that game. So we had no, no time to work on it. We very rarely play three at the back, but we had to stop them having all the ball in midfield. So we went 3 5 2. We, we played the left side centre half, who's a left back, Diego Rico, who's five foot eight. We put our right back at left wing back because we had no other players. We were putting, you know, to a degree, you know, square pegs in round holes. But that momentum shift, shift happened because we got a penalty. We scored the penalty within two minutes. Dominic Solanke scored his first Premier League goal, and and you could feel the buzz around the place. And three, yeah, you could see, you could see it, Fletch on the telly. You could see how happy everyone was for him. 
it was a three-minute swing in a football game that looked like we were going out of the Premier League and our, our time, five-year span, was done. And it's just give us a glimmer of hope. And I'm hoping now, with the other goals that went in, I mean, it could have been five or six at the end, that's going to yeah. give us the impetus. We have got Man City. <laughs> Fletch, Fletch, without, without, I don't want to set you up here at all, but... Oh, mate, I mean, don't have to. It is I've, what it is, mate. I've watched Man City a couple of times this season and, and I've watched them on the telly and, and I'm just, I'm crying out for someone to do something really radical against them. Do you know what I think? If I get, it's probably not your situation or your time to do this, but just to, to do something totally different and come up with something that they wouldn't expect. And because I think if you, if you sit off them, they are, un, they are so good. You can't beat them at what they try to do. If you sit back, they'll, they'll eventually score. And I was thinking, I was watching the other day going, Right, what sort of formation could you do that Pep <laughs> would be like? And I'm thinking now, nah, Mickey, you haven't got a formation in your head that Pep we'll would just be able to beat. We'll put 10 players along the 18 yard line. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, right, no. I still think they'll get through that though with ease. Yeah, they'll find a way. They'll find a way. I'm just glad that they're not on fire at the moment before we play them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, at the moment, as well as Manchester United, they're the most informed team in the country, probably in club football. We've never took a point off them in the Premier League in, in five years. If there's ever a time, yeah. they have yeah, yeah. when you play any of the top boys. Of course, Liverpool and Manchester City even more, especially this season and last. But you play any of them big boys, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal, Man U, Man City, Liverpool, you need them to have an off day. You need a bit of luck to go your way and you need to be clinical. I mean, we've, we've been beat off them at home 1-0 a couple of seasons ago, but we, I mean, we never do it, but we sort of packed the bus and we were never really in the game. It was a 1-0 comfortable win. We got beat off them the season before 2-1 and they scored in the 97th minute. Sterling deflected the ball from his right foot onto his left and that's the closest we've come. And we didn't, we didn't quite go toe-to-toe with them. Mickey's right, you can go toe-to-toe with them. They're the best players in the world. They'll tear you apart. They've torn Brighton, tried to play their way the other day and fair play, they stuck to their philosophy, but they find a way and they punish you. You don't lose the ball and you get punished one every two or three. You get punished every time, basically. So you've got to be so good on the ball. You can't go and press them. You can't go and try and match them because they're just unbelievable. That's what they want. So we've got to find a way. But you're right, (laughs) talk about that momentum. You'd be a billionaire if you could find a way. (laughs) But I just, I, you just think though in football, you know, like when I was at Hartlepool, you were at Bournemouth, you used to play against a team, say a Tranmere, and if their centre forward normally or the winger wasn't playing, you'd be rubbing your hands thinking, oh, their best player's not playing today. We've probably got a good chance of beating them. With City, you take out eight of their players and eight just as good ones yeah. come in. You know, it's not a case of, oh, I hope Sterling's not playing because someone else will come in and fill his boots. It, the depth of the squad is incredible. Absolutely, and that's why they're one of the best teams in Europe in, in club football. Um, so this new rule of having like five subs is uh, sometimes <laughs> they, make all five, they make all five subs and all five of them players would walk into your team and be the five best names on the team sheet. So it is tough, you're right. Um, but it's learning curves and the players love to play against their teams, of course. Yeah. You wouldn't want to do it every single week because it would demoralise you. I mean, they thumped us four a couple of times and at home and away, but we have got close on a couple of occasions. And listen, it's proven that they can, they can they can slip up. I mean, Huddersfield drew there a couple of seasons ago to keep their Premier League status nil nil. Crystal um, Palace beat them there, didn't Palace, they? You know, 
you just need them to have an off day. Unfortunately for us, they're playing really well at the moment. But listen, it's football. You, you, you can't say you've not seen funny things happen because you have. You just need everything to go your way. I was watching when my boys the other day and they were like, Dad, like, when you were at Hartlepool, which player would you have got out Man City team to make your team better? So I was like, well, do you know who I, I, would, I would take the goalkeeper? I said he would come into Hartlepool team, play him outfield, and he would have probably got us promoted. You can tell me. I'll be flicking things on the 18-yard box. <laughs> His distribution is in unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. It's a, he's a, he puts it on a sixpence, doesn't he? He's a, yeah. So if they go short and you go tight, he can hit the fullbacks, he can hit the, the nine, he can drop it into the ten, but he doesn't just drop it in. He somehow zings it and it's just phenomenal to watch. And, and I think that's just the modern-day way that goalkeepers are looked to play now, especially from teams who want to play out. I remember it from when I was coach. It was actually at, um, at Bournemouth uh, with Coops and, and we were really worried about coming down. Was, Harry Redknapp was there at the time. I think was he was an advisor or something like that. And we'd, we'd set this plan up. And on the day, it worked absolutely brilliant. We had everything. All the team shape was brilliant. And I think we conceded in the last couple of minutes and oh, drew, yeah. drew one all. And I was like, I was, you know, as a coach, when you think, I've done my job today. I've set the team up properly. The players have done it and we've just been unlucky. So I'm thinking, right, Harry Redknapp's going to come in and he's going to pat us on the back and say, hey, you're a young coach. That was absolutely brilliant today. So I've gone into the, the room. I can't remember who the manager was. It wasn't uh, Eddie. It was a lot. Paul of Groves. Paul Groves. Yeah, he was a manager. And um, I remember Harry Redknapp coming in. I had a beer and I was like, right, this is, a, this is my chance here. And he, he turned around as he went, do you know what won the 320 at uh, Harrogate or something like that? And I was like, and that was it. He just talked about racing the whole time. And I, I stayed for about 25 minutes. And I was all I wanted was Harry Redknapp to say, you played well today, so no. Something along those lines. And I, I, I just, I, I was so disappointed. It was probably the all highlight of the, of the season for us as well. All that way back up. I remember what happened. We scored in the 92nd minute. It was Matt Tubbs, the striker, scored. Was oh, that's up. right. Yeah, yeah. There was a mix-up in your defence. He went more. through and slipped it under the keeper in the 93rd minute. Is yeah, that the one where Buster smashed the dugout? Yeah. 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 That was the one because I wasn't in the squad that day. It was like... I wasn't really getting on with the management and uh, I was getting faded out before Eddie come back a little bit, and which was fine, that's football. Um, and I was watching from the stands and I was like, oh dear, we're going to get beat. And Matt Tubb scored in the, in, the, in the last minute, really. And it must have been terrible to go all that way back home. Because, you know, and listen, all them long tr- trips that we've endured over the years, going yeah. and you lose a goal in the last minute or you get beat 1-0 and... Oh, it makes the journey back horrendous. Oh, it's horrific. It's horrific. Right, Fletch, we'll, if we can, we'll go back to your career and, and how it started. Yep. And obviously, so you you were at Hartlepool before me. When you got to the club, was that straight from school? And who were the like sort of players that you looked up at the time? You obviously a Hartlepool lad. Was there anyone that you played with that you like looked up to as a sort of, not of a hero, but as a, a player that you wanted to be like? So what happened was I was at school, I was 16. My birthday's next my birthday's on the last game of the season against Everton. Can you believe what that'll be like? <laughs> well, go one way or the other. Anyway, I'll so come I'm down for that party, Fletch. Oh, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? Um, so I'm a, I was like a late developer at school because obviously with the, the way the schools are, the 1st of September, I was always one of the youngest. So I had to wait and wait and wait. And then right at the end of May, somebody said, oh, Harley Cole United are doing trials down at... 
the power station. I don't know if you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we used to. I think like we used to train there. We used to train there towards yeah. the last year of my um, time there, and so I went down. There was millions of kids got invited back to the second trial. Um, this was to be a youth team player, and done really well in the second trial. Scored a goal, set one up. Thought I'd stood out, and then basically. As quick as this, afterwards, I was getting in the car with my parents. The manager, uh, youth team manager, John Craggs, came up to me and was, um, do, you want to, do you want to come in on Monday and we'll speak about you being in the youth team? And I went into, like, what's your YTS scheme now? They call it the yeah. youth team, YTS team. And I went in and there was only 11 of us. Um, and I started and we had pre-season and we used to run up and down the sand dunes to see it. And then I had my second year. <laughs> and I got injured a lot in my second year. Um, in that time, Bob Moncare, let me get this right, had lost his job. And then Cyril Knowles come in. And I got back fit around about March. So we were playing in the Intermediate League. I think we played like Newcastle in the Intermediate League. They had people yeah. like uh, Steve Howie in there and Lee Clark. So they were a top team. And I played up front. So Cyril Knowles came down to watch. I forgot where we used to play the games. It, was, it wasn't in Hartlepool. It was just out of Hartlepool. But anyway, he came down to watch and I was up front and played for 20, 25 minutes and got injured. So I'd waited months, got myself back, but I'd had a good 25 minutes. I put on a bit of height, I got a bit bigger and won a few headers and I was like, oh dear, and I've done my knee and it ends up being the knee that I had 11 operations on throughout my career, but I punctured a, a muscle in my knee and it blew up and I had to come off and Got back fit towards the end of the season. We only played in one reserve game at home. It was okay. It was, I, was, I was okay. I wasn't great. I got on well with Cyril, but obviously back in the end days, you saw the manager of a youth team play. You didn't say much. And one by one at the end of the season, we went in to see him uh, as youth team players. Um, either basically, yes or no, you're getting a contract, a pro contract. You're not. I'd already booked my place at Hartlepool College to go and be a PE teacher because I got my five all levels at school. Because I thought, not a chance. He's seen me for 25 yeah. minutes and half a reserve game. Not a chance in this world he's going to want me. Didn't know what was going to happen. Went in thinking no. And I come out, the happiest kid in Hartlepool. He said to me, I'm going to take a chance on you, big man. I like what I've seen. I was like, I like <laughs> probably come out and shed a tear and couldn't phone my parents because there was no mobile phones in there. <laughs> so, I was buzzing and I'm like, all oh, the lads were looking at me like, what did he say? What did he say? Like, I just can't believe it. He's, he's offered me a year's contract. And they were like, oh, wow. I think every, all the other youth team players thought, no chance. And the only other kid who got a contract was a player called Lee Todd. And then the little lad who ended up going down to Stockport and he ended up playing for Southampton as well, I believe. But um, everybody else got released. So he took me on on the fact of, basically, he liked big, strong lads who were going to fight for him. And what yeah. he'd seen in 25 minutes, because let me tell you now, we wouldn't be doing this interview, I don't think, and I wouldn't be where I'm at and done the things I've done if it wasn't for Cyril Knowles taking an absolute gamble on me, because it was an absolute gamble. I mean, I went from then, played one or two reserve games that season, to starting the pre-season, and then starting the first game away at Chesterfield. I mean, you couldn't go from one extreme to the other if you tried. All of a sudden... My heroes watching on the terraces, Joel and Paul Baker, I'm playing alongside him in a front three away at Chesterfield with Rob McKinnon and Brian on at Tinks, Nobs. I'm like, can you imagine what it was like? A Hartlepool lad on the terraces watching these lads come through, watch these players, your heroes. 
obviously it started off with Bob Newton and, and John Bothwick and watching all of them and seeing players come through and, and Dobson. I think I'm trying to remember them all now. I used to go watch the terraces. But, and then in the space of a blink of an eye, I'm up front with Joe Allen and Paul Baker. I tell you what, going, Fletch, I, I've played against you a couple of times and I've played against Bakes a couple of times. I know Joe talks a good game, but I would not like to play against you when Bakes up front because there'll be a few elbows <laughs> flying around with you still. Well, Bakes is the one that I... Listen, I had to model myself on some players at, at your level. Everybody wanted to look at... Well, for me, it was like Mark Haitley, Lee Chapman, all big strikers. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be in Rush, but I wasn't built that way. <laughs> I wasn't that type of player. He was my hero. I was a Liverpool fan. I wanted to be Kenny Daglish. But you have to look at players who are like yourself to a degree, Duncan Ferguson, maybe, you know, for them type of target, yeah. aggressive. But for me and my and my era and the level I was at, Paul Baker was the one I said, well, I've got to try and do what Paul Baker's doing. What is he doing? And he helped me massively. He was the only one really pulled me aside and did things with me. So every time I speak, speak about Hartlepool and the team who got promoted in my first year, Paul Baker to me was my hero. And we went and had our 25th anniversary in 2016. Uh, we got a get together. We had it at Seton Carew Club. And uh, I said on stage, you know, he got us up one by one. And Joe Allen, like he did, posted it because he was a good compare. And I just said, there's, a, there's a shock. Yeah, <laughs> mind off him. But when I did get the mind off him, I spoke about everybody in the team, but Paul Baker was the one that brought my game on. And the one I looked at and thought, I want to do what he's doing because at that level he was a great player. He was strong, physical. Yeah. He got a few goals. He made it difficult for the defenders, and that had to be my job. And that first season, I played. I think I started maybe twelve games. I was sub twenty odd times. I was involved most weeks, and we got promoted. So you can imagine your first year as a pro, which you didn't even imagine would happen. You never really played many reserve games, and I'm in a squad, and we get promoted for one of the only few times in, at that time in, in Hartlepool's history. With all them players I've mentioned, all them heroes on the terraces, them legends. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we're in League One. And um, Joe Allen got his move and rightly so to Chelsea. Yeah. Uh, Paul Baker stayed. I think Andy Savile come in later that year and we signed. Lenny John Rose. I mean, obviously, it's horrendous what's happened to him. And, you know, yeah. such a top lad. And, that's, and, and I was in and out for the second season. In and out, obviously, horrendous for me. And for the whole of Hartlepool United and the town that still knows passed away uh, with a brain tumour. I mean, it broke me up that did because, if, like I said to you, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here now. And he put all his faith in me and gave me that opportunity. And I was absolutely distraught. I didn't know what to do. I was unconsolable. And Fletcher, I think, I think a lot of people outside of football don't realise how, especially when you're a young lad, I had it with a, a coach and, and he's passed away as well called John Pickering at Middlesbrough. And because you're spending so much time and they're giving you so much advice on and off the pitch, they almost look at them like another dad, another father figure. To you, that you want. And, and I had it with John. I was desperate. And John was a brilliant coach. He worked with us in, in the first thing. I was desperate to try and impress him every time he, so he could say something nice about me, so he could say, give me a positive. And it was, it's like when, when you go home, you tell your dad something, and he said, oh, well done, son. And a lot of footballers have that coach that looks after them and look, you look up to, don't they? Of course, you have your parents and good parents will always be there, but sometimes you need something different, something, yeah. somebody else. Because you can listen, you listen to your parents every day, of every minute, of every week, of every year, and you need another voice sometimes. And I remember a story, we were doing okay, 
but he come in the changing room and, and Cyril could be ruthless by the way he was he was brilliant with me he loved me to bits but if you weren't playing for him and giving you everything he could be ruthless and he went around the changing room one by one and he said to Don Hutchinson because Don was in the team then he obviously went to Liverpool he went two players are going from this football club obviously Joe Allen had gone to Chelsea already and I think Paul Dalton had gone to Plymouth so apart from that they'd already gone he went Don Hutchinson Steve Fletcher you're going places the rest of you you've got to pull your socks up so for me when he <laughs> when he passed away and he left I felt like as much as I wanted to do it for my family for my granddad who taught me everything because he was a professional and played for Hartlepool went on to play for England and Derby County won the FA Cup I wanted to do it all for them for my mum and dad for everybody my friends but deep down I wanted to do it for Cyril as well because he yeah. put his faith in me in that one little conversation and pointing at me in the changing room I was like oh wow this person believes in me he thinks I can go and do something with my life my career and I wanted to do it for him and that a lot of that in my early years was what drove me on um, because Don Hutchinson did go to Liverpool obviously I didn't go to the heights of Liverpool <laughs> but can't really compare to Bournemouth but you know I got I got a decent move to Bournemouth um, in my, what would have been my, my third year at Hartlepool I just you know I didn't see my, my pathway being opened up at Hartlepool and I just took an opportunity and so what what obviously distance wise Fletcher's a long way was there any was it <laughs> I was going to say I bet you've done it a few times was there any in your head that you didn't want to go or were you always when you heard about the interest from Bournemouth was it I'm, I'm going I'll tell you what happened quickly so I went into pre-season we were midway through pre-season um said uh, Alan Murray wants you in the manager's office it's like oh I was just getting ready for training went in there I thought oh my god what have I done I haven't been out I haven't been on the drink the teams I've done nothing wrong <laughs> it was pre-season I've been a good boy and he just said to me look he said I've had Bournemouth on the phone um and their manager Tony Pulis because Harry Redknapp had went to West Ham all oh, right okay uh as assistant manager with Billy Bonds and Tony Pulis had took over now I didn't realize at the time but on the last game of the season the previous season which would have been 91-92 season we played Bournemouth last game of the season at home we beat them 1-0 I played up front with Lenny John Rose he got the goal we won 1-0 and Tony Pulis saw me and thought like that lad might be able to sign him I didn't know any of that obviously and Alan Murray said to me look they've come in for you we're offering 30,000 with 20,000 add-ons it's good money I'm prepared to let you go down there and talk to them um, the border the border divided I think he said some don't mind some want the money some want you to stay he said look I've got Paul Baker I've got Lenny John Rose we're going to bring in others I don't want to block your pathway why don't you go down and speak to them see what you think and if you don't want to be down there come back and fight for your place so I had nothing to lose I just got home got the map of the British Isles out and went <laughs> Bournemouth 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 oh, oh my god oh my god it's at the other end of the country I was like dad where's Bournemouth and he was like, I think it's on the south coast I went well um, can you drive me there so we literally left training <laughs> went home told my parents dad said I'll drive you down and because I had never drove really past going shopping in Middlesbrough and going up to the metro centre really in my car so he took me down to Bournemouth it took about six hours in the middle of July we got there the manager met us put us in a lovely hotel on the seafront imagine how beautiful Bournemouth was and I looked at my dad I was like wow this is incredible place it was about 28 degrees it was hotel it was like going to bed in all 
basically. It was yeah. like, <laughs> but I got touch of the training ground, they were really friendly, but I had a decision to make and I had 24 hours to make it. And I panicked, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I'd been a hometown lad playing for my, my hometown club, never really been away from my parents as such to a degree, maybe on holiday with my friends, but that's it. And I had a decision to make to move to another club at the other end of the country. And I suppose, in no other certain terms, I just took the plunge. My dad said, why not? What's the worst that could happen? He was offered a three-year contract. It wasn't about the money. I think the money went from £150 a week at Hartlepool to £300 a month. But, you know, in the scheme of things, it wasn't that. It was, the, it was the opportunity to have a manager who wanted me to play for him in Tony Pulis. And, and this is incredible, right? So we went down on the Thursday. No, Wednesday night, we drove back Thursday morning to Hartlepool after I'd seen the manager. I came back on the Friday, drove back down myself with all this stuff. We played Aston Villa in a pre-season friendly on the Saturday, and then I drove back to Hartlepool. <laughs> and then back Monday morning, Sunday night, ready for Monday morning training. I'd been to Bournemouth and back. So it's a 720 mile or 700 mile round trip. I did it three times in four days. I did 12, no, how much did I do? I did... 2,100 miles. <laughs> <laughs> I go in the train in Monday morning. I was absolutely wrecked. I, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think, do you know, when when you go that far, do you think, I mean, I don't know how often you came home. You might have come home every weekend. I don't know. But do you think being so far away is actually a help? If you're a couple hours away, you might have been driving home yeah, during yeah. Mid, midweek and every weekend to see your mates and that. But because you're so far away, do you think that sort of, it says, right, I'm down here and I'm going to stick at it and I'm going to put me, me all into it being away from home. I came home maybe, I was pre-season, but there was only half of pre-season left. So maybe I came home maybe once more. And I think Tony pulled me and said, look, can't keep travelling, Fletch. It's going to take a lot, lot out of you, big man. You know, it's, it's a long trip. You're in the car for five, six hours there, five, six hours back. I want you, you to be fresh. So I was like, okay. So I stopped going up. And obviously, it was tough. But like I said, there's no mobile phones. I was living in digs and I had to ask the landlady to use the phone to phone my parents if there was any problems. And it was, uh, the first couple of years was hard because I know players move around the country now you know, to the drop of a hat, but there wasn't many young 19-year-olds who went from one end of the country to the other. And like I said, I took the plunge and it made me develop as a person. It made me stand on my own two feet. It, it made me man up, really, in, in some respects. I had to learn how yeah. to cope with things and deal with things on a regular basis, day-to-day -day business as a person because I couldn't just phone my parents up and say, oh, you couldn't help me with this. Of course, they did what they, they could, but it was almost sink or swim for me and I found it very difficult for the first two years to a point when Tony Pulis got the sack after two years that our new manager come in, Mel Machin, and I told one of the other coaches that I wanted to leave and I wasn't happy. I wasn't, the fans weren't really behind me somewhere, somewhere, and I was getting a lot of abuse of some of the supporters because I wasn't scoring loads of goals, but I think they forgot I was 19, but they, in their eyes, they'd seen me come in to play regularly, replace a good goal scorer in uh, Jimmy Quinn, the old striker up yeah. front. And he was a good goal scorer and he left and I came in and the goals didn't come. And I remember being in, I think it was in the supporters bar, and it was just a supporter come up to me and he said, listen, Fletch, he said, you don't have to score every week. If you work your socks off at this club, he said, the supporters will get behind you. He said, of course you want to score goals. He said, but the supporters will love you. If you close down, you show 100% commitment. And I thought, well, that's the least I can do. And the following year, 
it just changed for me and I won supporters player of the year. I played centre half for a while because we got so many injuries. We had a great escape season where we only had 10 points at Christmas and we were like 12 away from the drop and we stayed up on the last day. And my whole time and moments at Bournemouth and changed the supporters that weren't with me were with me and I still I still was a bit marmite. I was still like like the love. But the swing, the the, the, the pendulum swung in my favour of more people like me because I was ready to commit everything I had. And I had a couple of half-decent seasons where I got 12 goals, 15 goals, but I was never going to be a relentless goal scorer. But what I did was is I made sure I, I worked hard and I supplied a lot of goals and I was a nuisance. And we had some successful teams and I think the fans sort of like, I got them on my side through that. But it was, it was times I wanted to leave. I was in my bigs crying, I, I was upset with the abuse I was getting and I'm not talking about say we don't want you down here, why don't you go back to Hartlepool? I'm on about proper horrible abuse and I would never want to say that to my children one of the things that, that some of the sports said to me was absolutely vile, it was absolutely horrendous and it affected me. Um, I'm yeah. not going to lie, it affected me and I didn't want to be there and, and there's only myself really got myself out of it through a mindset and I think that comes back to your upbringing, your parents, all the things you went through when you were younger, determination, because I could have easily just sacked it off and went, oh, I don't want it, it's not for me. Uh, you know, I, it's hurting me too much. But like I said, it's sometimes in life, not just football, in any walk of life, you have to sink or swim. And It's that inner drive, Fletch, isn't it? It's that, because it's that, you want to do something so much that you'll, you'll put up with, you'll say, I'll give it another six months or I'll give it another six weeks and... And sooner or later, and, and luckily for yourself, it turned on on or maybe a goal or a performance or you see it did an escape. You know what I mean? And and that's sometimes all it takes, especially I think for a centre forward, and especially. And it comes with a territory, Stevie. I would very similar to yourself. Good player, good, player, good goal scorer. Like it, it, people would divide. He doesn't score enough goals, but then he would score a, a crucial well, goal. And, <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think sometimes because. Your stature as well. People are expecting you to score, but they don't realise how many goals you're setting up for other people and how widely you are in the team. No, you're 100 right. I always say big players stand out. So when you're doing well, you stand out more. When you're not, you stand out. Yeah, yeah. Negative reasons. And when I was winning my headers and I was setting goals up, I was nicking the odd goal. Of course, things were great. When I was missing chances, that seemed to get magnified ten times more than any other player. And you're right, Stevie Howard, I used to look at him and he got moves to the championship and a lot of his career at the second level of English football. And unfortunately, I didn't, but the probably difference between me and him was he scored more goals than me. He wasn't better in the air with me. He wasn't better at holding the ball up. I think I was as good as any in the leagues, but getting 15, 20 goals a season is what Stevie Howard did. And yeah. you know, I, I would have looked to emulate what he did because he was a big, strong, powerful lad and he, and he got goals. But it, like I say... When you're at any club, I mean, you were loved at Hartlepool and, you know, you're recognised as probably one of the best players in the club's history. I suppose I am to a degree now. Um, Fletcher, you've, have, got to, you, you've, got to be, you've got to be one of the best players. You've got to stand named after you. Uh, yeah, but, and it's got your picture on the top. We didn't even know it had a picture on as well. <laughs> well I think that's the longevity of, of my time at the club. But, and, and, and obviously that you had as well. Uh, fantastic. But the fans took to you straight away. At Hartlepool, you know, the fans I think he's got a street named yeah. after him. <laughs> yeah, the house prices went down as soon as you put behind me on that. I had to win the fans over at Hartlepool, you know, I'd come in and yeah. 
you know, when, when Joe Allen left, it was me and Paul Baker and Lenny John Rose. And when I got my chance, when Bakes was injured, I had to come in and do what Bakes did. And some fans liked me and some didn't. And, you know, being a hometown lad at Hartlepool, it was tough. It wasn't one of them, well, you just, they just put their arms around you. And, you know, Hartlepool's a tough town. It's a working man's town that, as I call them, men are men. And, you know, you weren't <laughs> you you doing it, you did. You got abuse and they let you know. So my time at Hartlepool was tough, but I was just starting to make a headway and you know thinking I could I could break into the squad regularly rather than being a, a big player here and there and so I, the first four years if you include the two at Hartlepool of my career were, were a tough a tough wakening really and like I say it could have went the other way and, but I think just that determination to go back to what I said about wanting to do it for my parents but also Cyril knows I didn't want to give up I'm not a person who gives up you're, you're gonna have to hold me down with chains to to stop me trying because the least you can do in this world is try. I've read, I've read, Steve, just about that de- determination you had and the inspiration from, you know, you mentioned Cyril Knowles and the impact he had on your career, but I've read little bits and pieces about how much of an impact your granddad had as well. Obviously, you come from a yeah. football heritage there as well, and your granddad was such a, a good player, wasn't he, that he, you know, he yes. must have helped you massively in the early days. Yeah, you know, when you're younger and he's grabbing you and he's saying, right, come in the back garden, we're going to just learn your basics, and I'm on about chess hard volleys, passing left foot, right foot. At the time, obviously being eight, nine year old, you look at that and go, well, I want to be out with my friends because they're all hanging around the, the swings <laughs> and on around the street corners and doing things that shouldn't really probably be doing. But the granddad was like, no, come on, we're going in the back garden. I mean, just throw five yards away, headers, chest, knee, little skills, little basics. And you look at it now, he's still doing it to this day. So although the coaching wouldn't have been anywhere near what it is now, then basics are there, the fundamentals are there. You, you speak to any top player in any sport, from Michael Jordan in the NBA to whoever, Cristiano Ronaldo in, in football, the basics, the fundamentals, they never go away and you learn them and you learn them young, they stay with you for life. So although I was a big lad and renowned for my hitting, I've still got a nice touch. I've still got, you know, I can still hold the ball up. I can still pass with both feet to a degree maybe not the top, top level, but that comes from my granddad doing all those basic skills with me week in, week out for, for the years that he was with us. Unfortunately for me, it still sort of haunts me to this day. He passed away two months before I you know, made it as a footballer and it was always his life's ambition to see me as a player. And um, he died when I was 15, unfortunately. He was 72, but he was a top player and you know, he played for Derby County, won the FA Cup. He, for England and started off at Hartlepool. He played for some big teams and played at the top level for many years. And, you know, I never reached the heights he did. I mean, I played a lot of games, 836, but I'd like to think that I did him proud as well and uh, from all the time and effort he spent with me when I was younger. Well, one, one I think, so, sorry, Simo, I think talking about the fundamentals, Fletch, when I was at Middlesbrough, I had a coach called Ria Train, he used to play for Sunderland. He was really hard on, on the white yeses. He was a reserve team manager. But he used to want to play head tennis for hours and hours and hours after training. So we would sometimes, four or five o'clock, would still be playing head tennis. And I, I, for the whole of lockdown, I've had a head tennis net set up outside my house, a little cul-de-sac. And my boys and, and anyone who wants to play, I'll play head tennis for as long as I can. Because I think if you can, it's a simple basics, control, moving your feet, getting the ball back, using your head, little angles, it's all the stuff you need. And, and my kids like, Dad, will I ever beat you? And I was like, you'll only beat us when I can't walk. 
because I've done those fundamentals for every day of my life for so long that I know what I'm doing. And I think it is, it, you grow up with them, don't you? Absolutely. And at Hartlepool, every day we had like a, or where the changing rooms were, we had, I don't know what it turned into, but it was like a, almost like a, a garage, a big garage open concrete floor. And we used to put a net across and we'd play pairs every day. Me and Paul yeah. Bolton, Baker, Joe Allen, everyone. And you're right, head tennis, you get so much out of it. Our manager, Eddie Howe, has three boys. He has them in his garden playing head tennis. And now we've got them tech ball tables and we've got them at the club. Oh, yeah. Mate, you can see, I know it sounds ridiculous, you can see Premier League players playing on that for three or four weeks. And then when they go out, their touch is better, their movement, their posture, the way they hold the ball, their, their approach onto it, their, their technique, everything is better. And I always would say, especially when you're young, do that all day long. Do never stop yeah. your kids until they fall asleep on the court. You can never do enough head tennis because it brings out every aspect of football and the basics. I remember Danny Wilson saying to me, he was like, Mickey, I, I, you judge your player the first time in training and you'll think, could he be my head tennis partner? And if the answer's yes, you know you've got a good player. Absolutely. Like, it's, it's true because, I mean, we've had players over the years that wouldn't be able to control, wouldn't play, and I'm like, nah, I don't want him as my partner because I want to win and I want, you know what I mean? And it's true, you see those fundamentals, the, the basic control, you look at Hums, yeah, I'd have Hums. You look at Mark Tinkler, yeah, I'll have Tinks. Those type of players, because they're comfortable on the ball, they go out on the pitch and you see it. Yeah, yeah and like I say, you can never do the basics good enough. There's a documentary on Kobe Bryant, and you can see it on YouTube. And I think a, 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 a reporter or something says, I'll meet you. Can I come and watch you train? He said, what time is training? He said, at 4 a.m. So he thought, I'll beat him to the gym. And he went at 3.30 and Kobe Bryant was already there. And he said he went through, he went through for an hour basic drills that he was teaching 14 and 15-year-olds at college. So apparently he went to Kobe Bryant and said, why do you do them basics? They're, they're the things. He said, why do you think I'm so good? Because I do the basics. You can never beat the basics. He said he did it for an hour before he even started his proper training at 4.30 a.m. or whatever it was. And that just hit home with me. And I was like, if I ever, I've got two daughters, but if I ever had a boy, I would, until he fell asleep and dropped, I would be doing the basic skills with him. Left foot, right foot, balance, technique, volleys, volleys. You can never get enough of it. The best I've ever seen do was Nick Barmby at Middlesbrough. Barms used to go out before training, he would set up the cones and he would just in and out the cones, left foot, right foot, turn at the top. And he'd probably spend 20, 25 minutes, half an hour, every morning doing it. And like, But he wouldn't want anyone to notice or he was just doing it because he knew that would help him in training and the games. And religiously, every single day, it was 20 minutes, half an hour. The other lads maybe having a cup of tea, but... He was just, he knew he needed to practice that to make him better. Well, that doesn't Harry Redknapp always say about Frank Lampard, last one, last one off the training pitch, he would just be there. And, and Ronaldo, when he was at Man United, when he was younger, he said yeah. he was there for an hour afterwards. And they, they don't become the best in the business at their position just by luck. Nobody picks up a football and goes, hey, look at me, I'm good at football. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. You know, yeah, people say he's gifted. I don't think you, you're gifted. I think you have to work at that gift. You might have good attributes, you might be physically strong, you might have good genes, you might be tall, you might be athletic, you might have a good metabolism, whatever. But you have to work at it. You don't just pick a football up and go, hey, look at me, I'm unbelievable. You work and you work and you work. Yeah. These players, and you know, if I have any regrets, it's because I didn't work enough on many aspects of my game. And 
we all have hundreds of regrets and I do and I wish I'd done this and I wish I'd done that but my biggest regret was I wasn't hard enough on myself and I didn't practice enough on not just not just what I wasn't good at but also what I was good at and make it even better and if I could rewind time that would be the first thing I'd do work yeah. more and, and, and work more on, on what I should I needed as a footballer I know you mentioned it earlier on Fletch about the goal that you scored against Grimsby and, and the folklore that that goes down in down at Bournemouth but if we can just talk about that in a bit more detail because it was it must have just been an incredible I know the shirt came off and everything didn't it it was such an emotional moment it was because I was at Crawley and then he got the job on January the 1st or New Year's Eve and uh, I was with a wife and obviously Eddie had watched come through the youth team I'd spent 15 years with him as a player he'd be my roommate he was one of my best mates and my missus said to him are you going to phone him up and congratulate him and I was like nah he's going to phone me up he's going to ask me to come back we both laughed about it <laughs> and on January the 3rd he phoned me up he went Biggin what are you doing <laughs> what do you mean he went I want, you, I want you to come back and I went mate I've got 80 I said don't say that to me don't mate because it was making me all nervous I was like mate I'm 36 you don't want me back he went Biggin I want you back I said mate I've got 18 months left of Crawley he went well get out of it I said, I can't get out of a contract. I said, Steve Evans is my manager, and you know what Steve Evans is like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's a crazy man. I love him a bit, but he's crazy. And he went, I want you back. He said, I've got 21 games to go. He said, the deadline is Jan end of January. You have to have your he said, we're in an embargo. I need you to come back. He said, can only match your wages at Crawley. It wasn't nothing really. We were in the blue square, blue square Premier League. We were doing all right as well. Crawley were in the top four or five. I was like, how the hell am I going to go to Steve Evans and say I want to leave and go back to Bournemouth? So I just laughed Eddie off and then he'd phone me up and we had a couple of games in between and he'd be like, don't get injured, don't get injured. I'm like, mate, I'm not coming back. I thought you're crazy. <laughs> but then a week or two passed and it got to about the middle of January and it was playing on my mind. I couldn't sleep. And obviously, I told my family and 90% of people said, Fletch, you've had 15 years, don't go back. They're 10 points adrift at the bottom. Eddie's lost his first two games away at Darlington and Rotherham. They're, they're going to go out the Football League. They are, they're going to go into administration, probably into liquidation. Don't go back, don't go back. And I was like, yeah, you're right, you're right. I know I can't. I've got 18 months on my contract. I'll just see that out here and you know, what it will be, will be. We'll see what happens. But I was laying in bed, it was playing on my mind. And then... My missus said to me, what do, you, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go back. She said, well, just go. So I went and seen Steve Evans. I plucked up the courage. He went to me. Are you really being serious? I said, Steve, if it was anyone but Bournemouth, I wouldn't be in your office now. Mate, I walked backwards and forwards three times before I went in the office. <laughs> before you did. <laughs> My heart was going like that. I was like, this is going to go off his nut at me. He's going to go mental. No, that's not like Steve to go off his head, is it? <laughs> I've seen some things in them six months <laughs> good and bad what a man things I couldn't tell you but I plucked up the courage I went Steve I need to get it off my chest I was almost in tears I said listen I'm really sorry Eddie's been on the phone he wants me back what do you think and he said what do you want to do so he put the ball straight in my car I said listen Steve if it was anyone and I mean anyone well obviously apart from Liverpool but <laughs> if it was anyone but Bournemouth I wouldn't even be in the office. He said, if it was anyone but Bournemouth, he wouldn't be in my office, Fletch. So he said, give me 24 hours if I can find a striker to replace you. 
I'll do the honour because I love you to bits and I'll let you go back to the club you love. Fair play. I waited Wednesday, waited Thursday and he phoned me up Thursday night, which was the, the night before the deadline, which was, would have been Friday morning. And he said, I've got a player called Robbie Matthews. He was at Salisbury or something. He said, go, yeah, and, go, and, go and enjoy your last couple of years. He said, I love you to bits. Thank you very much. He said, but you go. And I woke up Friday and I ran into the football club and there was nobody there because we had this embargo. And, Mm. Waited and waited, signed the deed, signed, the, signed on the my contract. Um, went and got a quick strapping because my thigh was dodgy, and Eddie dragged me off the bench, off the physio bench. Went onto the pitch. We were training on the pitch, and he had all the players give me a guard of honour. <laughs> a, a bit of tongue in cheek, but you know what? That tongue in cheek just made me like feel like wow, this is big. And I played every game. He brought me into gel the team together to be a, a vocal person in the changing room to maybe come off the bench now and then but we were playing Wickham Wanderers at home the next day and he said look the top of the league I want you to start are you fit to start I said yeah I'll start for you and I played every game for him like it was my last game and I played better at 36 year old than when I played at 16 26 <laughs> whatever because I played for him and, yeah. I, and it was a bit like playing for Cyril Knowles I played because he believed in me he showed faith in me He's my friend, all these things. And we beat Wickham 3-1. They were top of the league. They were flying high. They were four or five points clear at the top. We beat them 3-1. And we worked our way from them 10 points all the way to the last home game of the season. And it's the first game I've ever went into and thought, it's my destiny. 36 years of age, I actually believe once I'm going to score the winning goal. We went 1-0 down at halftime against Grimsby. They were in the bottom two with us. We were both fighting the steal. So it was a team that was in and around us. It was us or them, basically. We scored straight after half-time to make it one all. We had a full house, 10,000 pitch invasions. And then 80th minute, I just had this feeling, I have to score. This is the reason I've come back. My life is going to change at 36. And the ball got crossed in. Our lad headed it down. I chested it and smashed it in the roof of the net from the penalty spot. And then the shirt come off and running down. <laughs> I got halfway down towards Eddie and the, the players just piled on me and it is the best feeling I've ever had in my life. It was, I was crying, I ran up the steps to my wife and kids after the game and was just in tears that, you know, that just a group of players and to achieve what we'd achieved, everyone had written us off. For me, it was a personal thing as well as the team thing because I was 36 and I'd waited all my life for that one moment. Yeah. My destiny, my destiny really. and. Um, like I say, I wish I'd gone into every game thinking I was going to score, but it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I never did. And then as the, as the minutes ticked on, I'm thinking, I'm going to get the win. I'm going to get the win. This is the reason I come back. This is the reason I put everything on the line for my family, for Cyril Knowles, for my granddad, for everything that's happened in my career. And then the five years after that, because I played till I was nearly 41, we got promoted the next year. I ended up assistant manager. We got promoted to the championship. And I had more drama in the last four and a half years of my career than I'd had in the previous 19. It was crazy. And you just never know what's around the corner in football. Yeah. I think, though, Fletcher, I mean, you look, as you say, that goal, Bournemouth might not even exist as a club now if that goal's not scored. So it's an iconic moment, isn't it, in your career and the club. And I, I was saying to someone, come on, I've never, ever seen anyone play when they've got a stand actually named after them when they're still playing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? How did that come around and how did it Yeah, you know, the first time when you went on the pitch and 
and there's a stand named after you, but like obviously if you're retired or I can understand, but you were still playing in the game. The lads must have given you some stick, oh, surely, man. about that. They must have gone. <laughs> Beyond belief, mate, I took absolute pelters left, right, and centre. Not just from my own teammates, but the opposition. And we were playing away from home. I think it was Grimsby away. Eddie Howe said, Look, Chairman wants to see you upstairs just before we leave on the coach on Friday morning. Went up there, thought I'd done something wrong again, but I knew I hadn't. I'd been very sensible. I mean, I was 30, 37, 38 years of age. And he said, I want to name, rename the North Stand, the main stand behind the goal after you. And I was just, didn't know what to say. I mean, for the first time in my career, I was <laughs> dumbstruck. I was like, I, I, really, I basically want to say to him, you're taking the piss. <laughs> the chairman, he was the chairman. I went, all oh, right. And he showed me the plans. He said, I'm not joking. I went, I don't know what to say. I'm humbled, honoured, proud, excited. And he showed me it. And he said, what do you think? I was like, yep. That'd be very nice. Thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to, I just wanted to jump up and down. I got on the coach and I thought, and Eddie House said, "You happy?" I went, "Am I happy?" Give him a big kiss. I was on the phone with my mum and dad, all my friends in Hartlepool. I went, "You can't believe they're going to name the stand after me." And someone said, someone said to me, "But doesn't that happen when you retire?" I went, "Maybe they're trying to tell me something." I <laughs> but mate, it was an honour, and it got on the local news, and then they put it out there into England and then Europe and. Asked the question, has anyone had a stand named after them while they were still playing? Like Nicky said, and it usually happens when people retire or unfortunately pass away. And yeah. nobody ever come back with anything. We definitely know <laughs> in the UK and in, in Britain, but we also think in Europe. So if that's the case, I'm very honoured. Um, it was bizarre. Played all the opposition. It was usually the opposition who were facing that way. They had to say to me, Flex, do I have to look up there and see your feet for 45 minutes? Because this thing was astronomical. This was, it was like two and a half metres high by a metre and a half wide. Probably a replica of my actual head, because obviously I've got a long face. But um, listen, at the end of the day, yeah, it, that big face was, was bizarre. But I was so proud of it. Every time I looked up, I was like, nobody can take that away from me. And, as much as I experienced some amazing moments, I played at Wembley in an auto with Street final, won 70,000, got one hat trick, played at the Millennium Stadium, scored in a playoff final win, broke the club record appearances. All that is brilliant because that's on the field. But when you're growing up as a kid, of course, you, what Montreal says, you have them dreams. You want to play yeah. for Liverpool, like, or your favourite team is you want to play in an FA Cup final. But I've done certain things that I've never dreamed of, like, say, walking out of Wembley, blah, blah, blah. But to have... That as an honour is something you don't even contemplate in your mind. Not even when you're growing up, but when you're playing, you don't. No. It was an amazing thing. And, you know, people even say to me now, it's like, Fletch, it's like, wow. And I said, I know. And it's funny because we're playing Premier League. We're playing Premier League teams now, right? And you see the managers when they sit in the dugout an hour and a half before the game. And they're looking up at that stand and they're going, and I think it was Jose Mourinho said to me, is that you? <laughs> yeah, that's me. He went, very good, very good. I was like, thank you. He went, very proud? I went, yes, very proud. He said, nice. And then that was it, right? I was like, <laughs> oh my God, Jose Mourinho just had a chat with him about my stand. I ran out to reception, picked up my mobile, for my parents, for my mates, for my missus. I was like, me and Hugh, me and... You know, me and Jose <laughs> And it's happened once or twice, and it's just bizarre. I mean, it doesn't matter how many times we play in the Premier League, how many times we're there. And every time I chat with Jurgen Klopp, and it might be for 10 seconds, 
Jose Mourinho always makes an effort and comes and speaks. Or even if you just basically say a couple of words to people like Pep Guardiola, maybe I can't wait to get home and tell all my friends and family about the 10-second chat. And I have a little bit on here and there. Of course you do. <laughs> I'll, never get, I'll never get bored of that. And that's why you know, a long may continue. But I'm a realist. I was brought up in Hartlepool. I'm a realist. And for that to happen, I mean, I'm even friends with Kenny Daglish, my hero. It's like, <laughs> it's crazy. He loves Bournemouth and he's always in La Manga when we're there, when we're pre-season training. And he calls me Fletch. And the first time he called me Fletch, I nearly broke down in tears. <laughs> he remembered my name. He was my hero beyond belief. I used to cry when Liverpool got beat as a team. And Kenny Daglish was my ultimate hero. And for him to actually even remember my name, never mind have a chat, you know, that was me. I was done. I was done. I'm, I'm happy. I can die. Can you see, Fletch, can you see now why I was so gutted about Harry Redknapp? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, goes full circle, doesn't it? He's a uh, <laughs> Harry's got other things going on. He's a character, isn't he? You know, oh, he's... it definitely is. Fletch, the stand is brilliant, and your career has been absolutely amazing. But there's one big question, and I've had. You probably know what's coming. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the lads want to know here why you started taping your shirt up, and did it just become like a superstition? Yeah. Was it something yeah. that you did, yeah. and you had a good game, or? So I'll round this up in 45 minutes, as I usually do. <laughs> right, so I got injured. I had a bad knee injury in 2002. I'd done my... I had a microfracture on my femur. I had a condyle defect. It's what Alan Shearer, Jamie Redknapp had to retire with. And uh, I was out for 14 months. I'd had six operations. They told me I'd never play, play again, blah, blah, blah. I came back after 14 months and we played Lincoln away. And stupidly, the kit man, as they do back in the day, he'd brought me a long sleeve shirt and right. I was like, his name was Bernie. I said, Bernie, where's my short sleeve shirt? I'm on the bench. The manager's Sean O'Driscoll has asked me to be on the bench. I've been back training a couple of weeks and I'm on the bench. I'm back 14 months out. Bernie, where's my short sleeve shirt? I never wore a long sleeve shirt in my life. It's in the kit. No, it's not Bernie. It's not in the kit. I was like, oh my God, you've only brought the short long sleeve shirt. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I went, give me the scissors. Give me the scissors. I'm cutting the sleeves off. I'm not playing in a long sleeve shirt. He went, just roll it up. I went, no, 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 no. But in the 14 months I was out, I'd been in the gym a lot, right? And I bulked right. up. I realised yeah, yeah. my knee was dodgy. I wouldn't be able to, not that I was a great runner, but I wouldn't be able to twist and turn. I saw I almost had to adapt my game. So I put on a lot of strength. I'd become even bigger and stronger. So I thought, well, I've got to try and manage my way through the next couple of years to have any type of career. So I cut the sleeves off and I swear on my children's lives, I cut them too high, right? So I meant to cut them about there, and I cut them about there, right? And I was like, oh my God, it looks like a wrestler. <laughs> so I thought, well, I can't do anything about it. In them days, you only take one shirt. Didn't have, a, yeah. didn't have another shirt. So I'm pulling them down, it didn't work. So I'm coming out against Lincoln. I came on after 70 minutes, and my sleeves were like that. And I remember one of their players said, Jesus Christ, this geezer looks like the ultimate warrior. And we won the game 2-1, and although I didn't cut the sleeves off, what I thought was, is, do you know what? Give me a bit of an edge. Felt like, <laughs> yeah. like, come on then, let's have it. And um, all I did was, is I put some tape around my arm, like the captain would, and I pulled yeah. my sleeves up and just rolled them under a bit. So my bicep was shown. I thought, well, I'd work 14 months for this, and I'm not sure what I've got. And it gave me an edge, and everyone used to yeah, say, yeah. I, mean, I thought, listen, I've got to do what I've got to do to stay in the game with 32-year-old. 
And if it gives me an edge over the defenders and makes them a little bit wary of me, I'll keep doing it. And you're right, it was a superstition. And I carried it on basically all the way through my career until I retired at 40, 41 years of age. So, yes, it was bizarre how it happened. And then in the end, I was like, you know what? I'm having this. I like it. <laughs> I mean, Armand I don't Traor want to... is it in the Premier League at the moment, but he doesn't really need to take them up, does he? He just has absolutely yeah, yeah. the gun yeah, show. I don't think it would have worked on these little things, like. <laughs> yeah, but you were a ball. You were a ball player. You didn't need to run against people like Mickey Nelson and defenders like that. You know, Sean Gregan and Andy yeah. Morrison. I was playing against them week in, week out, and you needed a bit of brute strength to even cope with defenders like that. Fletch, just before we go on to the the questions at the end, as I said to someone, like, I don't know you that well. I've sat with you a couple of games and. But the one thing I wanted to tell people about was the game where we had to get a point at Bournemouth to get in the playoffs. And we managed to get that point. We and, did it um, after the game, you came upstairs and, and spoke to all the lads. And obviously, being a Harley Bowl lad, you were probably happy that we got in the playoffs. But it just, for me, showed, you know what, this is a real good guy here. That after the game, you've got the humidity to come up and, and just wish us good luck in the rest of the playoffs. And, and, and basically, just show that you care and, and and ever since then I've thought you know what he's a good guy and he, he's, a, he's a type of person that you want to be around I'll be honest I mean if it wasn't Hartlepool probably time chances are I wouldn't have went up but yeah, it was because it, I mean we needed to win to get into the playoffs it was also you yeah, yeah. We, needed yeah, yeah. You. we needed to beat you and you needed a point and you got the point and I think we took the lead twice and twice you clawed it back I think Sweeney scored at the back stick with a header to equalise, to equalise, I think two-two, and the last half an hour we were throwing everything at you, and we just couldn't get the goal. And we were disappointed because we'd missed out by a point in the playoffs. Um, you got in there, and I think it goes back to when you're younger, Mickey. If you've been brought up the right way and you respect, yeah, people, I agree, man. We can, I agree. We can we can have tussles all day long and elbow each other by accident. And I played against some tough defenders, and we smash each other. And as long as there's a mutual respect there, I don't mind it, and you take cuts and bruises and split your eye open and you give them back and that's just the way it is especially at low league football and, but I always had respect I never went out to hurt anyone intentionally and uh, I've been brought up the right way my mum and dad owned a pub so for 39 years in Hartlepool um, so I was always brought up with older people I was taught to respect my elders when I was 15, 16 I was hanging around with older lads in my mum and dad's pub so they taught me how to act and go on and be respectful. And I think you take that into your life. And yeah. um, I wanted to go and speak to you. And I think I had a bond with you after that because every time I came and watched Hartlepool and went to the supporters club, I'd end up sitting and having a couple of drinks with half of your players after the game and yeah. chatting to them and sitting almost as if I was one of you. So Yeah, I, I remember Fletch sitting watching a game with you in the sun. We were both not playing. And, and if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have had a connection with you. Whereas then... After that, I was like, do you know what? If he's here, I'm going to go and speak to him. I'm going to sit and watch a game with him. I'm going to be with him, whatever it is. And it was just nice because it, we had a bond anyway with Hartlepool, but you don't get to know people that well until something like that happens. And I remember going up and I had a chat to you and I was telling you about Bournemouth and a few of your boys were asking about me and we had a good chat for 20 minutes after the game and like I said, I congratulated you because I wanted you to go on. I mean, Bournemouth's the next team I looked for. It was obviously us. Then Liverpool and Bournemouth, they were my two, uh, Liverpool and Hartlepool, they were my two teams. So we couldn't get in the playoffs. We missed out, but Hartlepool were in there. And I wish you wanted to wish you all a good luck because it's the next result I look for uh, behind Bournemouth. So 
I, I did have a special bond with a, a lot of the players, the club. I still love Harvey to this day. You know, I'm devastated that they're not in the football league. Um, but I think, like I say, that was just my character, and that comes from my yeah. parents when I was younger, and like yourself, we didn't know each other. I knew you'd been there a long time, and I, and I remember speaking to players on the pitch, and I just thought, do you know what? These are a great bunch of lads. You had a great team. You had not only a great, great team on the pitch, you had a, a good bunch of lads. I could see you had a good connection as a yeah. unit. And I thought, you know what? They've got that togetherness that, you know, I've only had maybe three or four times in my career. In the 24-year career, I've only had it three or four times, that proper togetherness that you think we can go places. And I felt it. I felt that season that you had it. Yeah. I like, I like what you're talking about there, Fletch, about the, you know, the respect between Hartlepool and, and yourself, because I think that extends to the people of the town still as well, because even though you only played sort of 40, 40 games for Hartlepool, you've gone on to achieve so much, and I think it's testament to you that the people of Hartlepool still now sort of claim that achievement as, as theirs as yeah. well, because, because you're from Hartlepool. That's lovely to think that, and you know, listen, there's nothing makes me more proud than when I come back and I go off and drinks with my friends and we go in a bar and then someone comes up and goes you're Steve Fletcher I know you well done on your career maybe not because of my time at Hartlepool because yes we got promoted but you know I wasn't a, a pool legend of course I wasn't I played 40 games of which most of them were off the bench but for them to recognise my career and what I've done and they were telling me things that I didn't even realise I'd done so they followed me they, or they come up to me and go I've been following you for 20 years 25 years and do you know what I'd go back and tell my mum and dad and my mum and dad were like so proud for me to tell them that somebody random has just come up to me and said I've always followed your career since you left in 1992 I've followed you and you've done really well I'm so pleased with you well done and I'm like that fills me with so much pride and, and honour and I'm very humbled that anyone would even do that but you're right that's the, that's the people are in Harper Gold there they're honest, they're, well, that's basically it. They're honest, they'll tell you how it is. And if someone's done well, they'll tell you. If, they, if you haven't, they'll, talk, they'll also tell you. So they're true, good people. And, um, you know, that's what I was brought up with. And, and, and they are special moments when people come and talk to you, don't know you, well, no matter where you are, if someone recognises you and they speak highly of you, there can't be any better recognition. It doesn't matter what level you play at. Yeah, uh, when I first went to Harleypool, I, I don't know whether it was Mick Tate, it might have been Bakes or Brian Honor, and and you you're trying to to, to gear Joe on you like the feeling of the club and this that and the other, and they're like Mickey, the best result for a Harleypool fan is to win four three, and I was like four yeah. three, well like why four three? He said because if you're three nil down at half time, they can boo you off and hammer you. But I tell you what, if you come back and win four three, you'll be absolute hero. <laughs> And he said, because they like to have a twist and they like to have that, but they really want you to win at the same time. They're like, you're a hero for life. They still remember things. They don't never forget. Harleypool people never forget things. They talk about games that I couldn't even remember what happened. And when I come back, I remember when you scored that goal and we won at Bury in the League Cup. I'm like, wow, that was 1991. It was like, how do you remember that? We had it on talk, when Talk we about never forgetting. Talk about never forgetting. I spoke to uh, Ian McGuckin earlier today. Uh, he was my best mate at the club. Well, Ian said to me, he remembers quite a few things about you that maybe we couldn't mention on the podcast, but he did say, <laughs> he did say, he did say that I had to ask you about the uh, the Vargan Beach party tickets you got in Tenerife. Oh, mate. So we, we, we used to go on holiday together at the end of the season. and then We used to go out, let listen, 18 to 30s. <laughs> and then we got a team together, you had to do, when you're in them, when you're in them situations, you've got a 
do stupid beach party things and I had to sing a song and uh, get everybody involved. So we had a group of people and I headed it. And obviously after a few beers, you start taking your top off and doing silly things, all in good faith, all in good humor. But Gookie didn't want to do it. I said, here, I'll do it. And I took my little group away and we learned this little song and I was the head of it. And everybody joined in and won the competition. And But yeah, Gookie was, I mean, I love Gookie and I still speak to him now after all these years. And he's a yeah, me lad. too. And he, he's a Middlesbrough lad and I love him a bit. And, you know, he's straight down the line. He tells you as it is. He went on and done really well. I know he had to retire from injury. He played for Fulham and yeah, a great lad. And I speak, I say, speak small time. He's my best mate at the club for a few years, along with uh, Andy Davies as well. Andy Davies was there. He was quite young yeah. because you got to remember when I was younger. Although and Nicky Southall came in towards the end, he went and had a fabulous career. But they're all older. He had Bakes, Joe Allen, Rob McKinnon, Brian Honor, Tinks, Nobsy, all in John McPhail. Yeah, in but Butterworth, all these uh, Paul Olsen, Paul Dalton, Jesus made the team. They were all older than me. Majority of them were a lot older than me, so I had to cling on to that younger group to a degree. And it was Ian McGuckin and Andy Davies, and then my last year was Nicky Southall. Nicky Southall, and it, it's great that we're still friends after all these years. Twenty, twenty-eight years later, twenty-nine years later, we still text each other. It's uh, I love it. And then when I get when I see my WhatsApp come over and it's Ian McGuckin. Have a bit of banter for a couple of days, and then probably don't speak to him again, like footballers do for yeah. a couple of months. But you know, you know, he's there. If you want to speak about anything, you can trust him, and you're going to get the truth out of him. And I think football's like that, isn't it, Miggy? Yeah, you need friends like that. I mean, I love Gookie the bits. I've, I, I, I always tell a story. I was flying on holiday with Gookie, and Gookie, Gookie can handle a couple of drinks. <laughs> so we're in the airport, and uh, we're flying to Dominican Republic. And we got onto the aeroplane and he bought me one, so I bought him one back and then I owed him I owed him one on the aeroplane basically. So I sent one back with the with the air stewardess. And thinking, right, we're done now, we're level, we don't need to do anything else. So then he sent me another one back. So I thought, well, I'm gonna have to keep sending them back. But every time I leveled up, he kept sending us another one back. I'm not kidding you, I got off the plane, I had about eight cans in my bag because I couldn't drink them all. Cookie <laughs> <laughs> had finished all his. But he's he's just he's do you know what? He is a salt of the earth guy. He's one of them lads who's you can depend on and like you say, if you need him, he'll be there for you. Hundred percent. You can just phone him and say, Cookie, I need you when you need me. That that'll be the first question. When you need me, right, I'll be there. Yeah. Great lad. Brilliant, man. Right, Fletch. He wants to know if you've still got your Astra convertible. You signed, you signed on for you went on. Uh, mate, I, I had started off with a Escort 1.1, then I went and got a Ford Sierra, and then I got an XR3i, a Ford XR3i when I was a Hartley club, and I pulled it in the car park like I was the nuts. <laughs> when I came to Bournemouth, I thought, oh, it's beautiful weather. I like convertible. But obviously, on 300 quid a week, I was like, can't really get anything new. And then I saw these Astra GTE convertibles. It was white with a black roof. So I think my mum and dad might have helped me out with it. And I put a deposit down and I went and got it. And I was driving around, mate, like I was cruising. Like, <laughs> oh, mate, around the streets of Bournemouth doing the circuits. I was like, look at this. And everyone must have looked at me and thought, what an absolute dick this key was. <laughs> you couldn't really, couldn't really get away with a convertible in Hartlepool. <laughs> there wouldn't be much use for it, Fletch. That's what I mean. The roof would be down about twice a year, at least in Bournemouth, by six months of it. Right, Fletch, honestly, that's been absolutely brilliant. I've loved that. The time's flown over talking here. And, and good luck for the rest of the season. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, you get the results you need. And as I say, Eddie, 
I'm his biggest fan. I, I said he should have got the England job last time, England job. I said, give it to him, give him 10-year contract and let him do his stuff with the England team. But hopefully you get out of it and you can go so. on and, and um, have fantastic careers. I hope so. I think if we can survive, it'll be another great escape. It'll be miraculous. We've got Southampton at home after Man City and then we've got Everton away. But listen, it's the Premier League. Every game's difficult. There's no easy games. They all pose their own problems. And if we were to stay up, I think next season will be a successful season. If it's a tough one, listen, it's a test of character, isn't it? You're never going to go into the Premier League. Any small club and think you're going to breeze it for five years in a row. Eventually, you're going to come into some problems. And like Eddie said to the players in the last few weeks, if we come out of this, you'll not only be a better player, you'll be a better person. Yeah. Simo two setting. Fletch, Man City... Them defenders, they can deal with little sharp runs in behind. I tell you what they couldn't deal with. Six foot three at the back post with a big elbow. Get yourself <laughs> on that pitch. <laughs> Do you know what? I know you I know absolutely tongue-in-cheek and you went to me the other day we come off. Because obviously I still join in a bit in training, especially when we do uh, defensive work and we're playing up against some big strikers. And he said to me, can we register you for the last five minutes? <laughs> register you to bring you on. We'll just hit you on diags. We've never done it. It's not our philosophy. He said, but can we do it? And I went, I'm ready. Get me out of <laughs> Let me tell you, the first ball in the channel, I would fall over. Not a yeah, just, just I thought we had a picture play exclusive there, Mick. Yeah, no, I, that'd be good. Fletcher's in the squad for tomorrow. Imagine that. And we are wheeling him out at 47 <laughs> years and 11 months old. Steve Fletcher, here he is, everybody. And everyone be like, who the hell is that? I tell, you, I tell you what, if you scored the goal to keep them up, what would the, what would the name after that? You'd have to rename Bournemouth. Well, I'd be sure, hopefully, along with Eddie, given the, um, what do they call it, the key to the city. Yeah, freedom of the city, yeah. That's why Eddie got, Eddie got that last year in Bournemouth. Did he? Brilliant. It's fabulous. It was a great event here. I went Honestly, Fetch, I just, I just wish you lived closer so I could come down and watch him work. I really do admire him well, that much. You know what? He's very private and he, he, it's not he doesn't allow anybody, but he's very in-house. He's very private. And yeah, yeah. Someone he knows, someone he can trust. Yeah. Um, obviously, you ain't so, so I wouldn't be allowed in then? <laughs> not you can <laughs> Are you you're a trustworthy person, aren't you? Of course I am. Well, Flex, just want to let you know that you probably know already your family and friends will be telling you, but the whole of Hartlepool will be behind Bournemouth as well. Everyone's, you know, crossing their fingers that, uh, that things go your way in the last three games. Thank you very much. Very kind of you. Thank you. And thanks very much for joining us as well. It's been a real pleasure. No, I've really enjoyed it. Some good banter and reminiscing of the old times. You listen, as you get older, you live for memories and then memories are brilliant. And to share them with yourself and Mickey, it's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Mickey, what another fantastic guest Fletch was. He's uh, he just absolute enthusiasm brimming out of him for the game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you sort of know what you're going to get with Fletch. You know, you know he's a, a character. He can he can talk, but he's a good guy. You know, he, he really yeah. is a good guy. And I think sometimes when you see him on the pitch, and like he says, his tan and his arms, he's big, and 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 that goes against him a little bit. But uh, some of the stuff he's gone into tonight, and and I mean. He's, he's in there in the Premier League club in the middle of all the COVID stuff and, and obviously still scrapping for survival and, and he's telling us stuff about Eddie and it's just brilliant and to get that sort of insight for someone yeah. that's actually in there doing it right now is, is invaluable, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's hard to get inside Premier League clubs as it is, but uh, he's given us a real insight of what's going on at the moment. 
And it is brilliant, isn't it, that Hartlepool people, like you said to him, Hartlepool people do, do have a real pride in what he's done with his career because, you know, it's, 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 it's the people of Hartlepool are like that, aren't they? They're very proud yeah. of the people that come from the town. And if he's gone and made such a success of himself, and just because he's left Hartlepool to do it, that doesn't diminish what he's done for them. No, and I think in a way, it's almost like he's connected now with the Premier League club, even though he didn't play any of his games in the Premier yeah. League and, and spent a lot of the time in the lower leagues like myself and, and a lot of players. Because now Bournemouth have escalated so much and, and he's gone with that journey, and he's such a famous sort of role model and hero in Bournemouth. He's been escalated along the way like that, you know. So everyone in Hartlepool, rightly so, should be proud of him. I mean, you should be proud if you're playing over 800 games in a, in a career. It's a lot of games. And especially he was getting... Uh, at the age that he was when he was still playing but he's gone on to do magnificent things within football and, and no one will ever no one will ever surpass what he's done at Bournemouth Brilliant well Nicky looking ahead to next week it's going to be episode 10 of Switcher Player next week we're going to have to do something special I think we're going to have to get a special guest on next week you know to mark the occasion Yeah I'm just racking my brains to see what we can get but hopefully we'll be able to, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to get someone that's uh, worthy of our 10th episode <laughs> Well, thank you very much indeed for everybody for watching and listening once again to Switch of Player. Do check us out on our social media, join us on there and, and keep up to date with who will be coming on next week. But I hope you enjoyed that one from me and from me. See you later.